It was almost impossible to fully split from your spouse while kings like Louis XVI reigned in France. Then, the French Revolution changed everything. In this episode of Footnoting History, we take a look at the introduction of divorce into French society. Hey everyone, Christine here with a new entry into our Revolutionary France series. Today I'm going to look at a legal change that had widespread repercussions for the people of France, the introduction of divorce. In the modern day, in many places, it's hard to imagine divorce not existing. So I like the idea of looking back at a time when it was new. And like with many new ideas, the early years of divorcing saw several legal changes. Looking at it from the present, it can be just a nice academic exercise. But I like to think about it from the perspective of someone living through the period. If you're interested in that sort of viewpoint, I suggest asking yourself as we go along, if I was in a really unhappy marriage at any of these points in history, what would I do? How would I feel about this law and its changes? Or, if that's not your thing, you can just sit back and enjoy learning what people in the late 18th and early 19th centuries had to go through to legally get rid of their other half. As I mentioned in the intro, in the days of kings like Louis XVI, getting a divorce was not a possibility in France, nor was it common in most areas of Europe. The church, that is, the Catholic church, had a great deal of jurisdiction over filing stats like birth, death, marriage, and the only way to fully break up a Catholic marriage was through an annulment. Annulments say that for a variety of very specific reasons, like the discovery that the couple is too closely related, the church would grant you a do-over. The marriage is voided, and it's treated like you were never married at all. This was an expensive and tedious process that not many people were able to, or wanted, to use. As far as non-religious ways to end a marriage, there was no way to truly do it without becoming a widow or widower, not that I'm suggesting anyone should murder anybody else here, I'm just stating a fact. This doesn't mean that all marriages were happy, or that all couples stayed together. It just means that if the couple hated each other and hadn't lived together or spoken in years, they were still technically married. There were then, just as now, couples that stayed married in the eyes of the law or church, but who lived completely separate lives. If, however, a couple sought to have the government recognize that their marriage wasn't working out, the main recourse was a legal separation. But these didn't happen all that often. A separation allowed spouses to live their own lives, physically away from their husband or wife, but again, they were still technically married. This was important because it meant that there was always a chance a subject could come up where the wife still was subject to her husband's judgment, even if she hadn't lived with him for ages. And neither spouse was able to remarry. It was like you were allowed to get to the finish line, but prevented from crossing over it. Then the French Revolution happened, and the revolutionaries had very different ideas about the way to run the country ones that revolved around fixing much of what they felt was broken about France, from the monarchy and religion to education and family structure. The revolutionary legislative body wanted to bring the country more in line with its new ideals. In 1791, it established marriage as a civil contract, as opposed to a religious one. This was followed by a series of changes in 1792 that included officially abolishing the monarchy, now, remember, both Louis XVI and his wife Marie Antoinette would eventually be executed, changing the way inheritance worked, 
removing powers from the church, and what we're interested in, introducing divorce. Divorce, which looked to some like it was going to tear families apart, was actually part of the revolutionary plan to make families stronger. The revolutionaries saw families as the bedrock of their new monarchless Republican world, and they wanted to foster the creation of happy, patriotic mothers, fathers, and children to support the new order and ensure its bright future. They didn't think that forcing people to stay in unhappy marriages was the way to do it. So when the government took over the official registration of events like births, marriages, and deaths from the church, they also granted people the ability to leave their marriages. By doing this, they believed that people would be more likely to find a new husband or wife who made their heart truly sing. Then these happier marriages would produce more children, and those children would be happy because their parents were happy. And everyone would be walking around France incredibly proud of their country and filled with respect and embracing all the virtues the government wanted them to. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? If you were looking to get out of your marriage, I don't really know that you cared about the ideology behind it, but you were no doubt grateful that a hitherto almost unheard of opportunity to be free landed in your lap. So how then did someone go about getting one of these divorces? Under the 1792 law, the ways to qualify for a divorce were pretty broad, and both men and women could file for them. Divorcing replaced separation, so couples were either all in or all out. But if they had a separation from any point before the 1792 law was put in place, all they had to do was show proof of it, and it was converted to a divorce easily, so that was probably very nice for a lot of people. If the husband and wife both wanted to end the marriage, they could file for divorce by mutual consent. If one wanted a divorce and the other didn't, the spouse who wanted out could file for a divorce based on incompatibility. In both cases, while no real reasons were needed to be given to get the divorce, there was a hurdle. The family assembly. Before the government would grant a divorce decree, the couple had to meet with a group of family members, or friends or associates, depending on who was available. The family assembly then had the task of trying to convince the couple to stay together. I mean, as much as this was serious business, I can't help but think it would be a wonderful setting for a period comedy or drama, right? Um, Anyway, if the group was unable to convince the couple to remain married, they signed a paper saying so, and it was presented to the registrar who gave them their decree of divorce. The mutual consent couples only had to meet with the family assembly once, but the incompatibility couples had a longer road. They had to do it three times in a span of six months. That's a lot of attempted family interventions. If the spouse desiring the divorce didn't give in and change their mind, the same process occurred with bringing a signed statement of non-conciliation to the registrar. Given that divorce wasn't an option at all before, six-ish months to finish the process might not have been so bad. We may think that little is special about this, but these two types of divorcing were controversial because they required no placement of fault on one of the members of the couple. You could simply divorce because you wanted to, without either person being shown to have caused it. This could still mean, of course, that even when one of the couple had done something to cause a divorce, they secretly agreed to split up using mutual consent or incompatibility just to save face and avoid everyone finding out their behind-the-scenes drama. But sometimes a mutual consent or incompatibility divorce either wasn't possible or wasn't desirable. So the government allowed for that, too. A married person could also file for divorce from their spouse on several specific grounds. These included, and here's the list, dementia or madness of one of the spouses, 
one of them having known dissolute morals, violence or ill treatment by one toward the other, one of the spouses being convicted of criminal activity and condemned to serious punishment, and one half of the couple leaving, categorized under things like desertion for the last two years, emigration to another country, or absence of one of them without news for at least five years. One little blip here is that a few years after the 1792 law, another ground for divorce was added to that category of somebody leaving. You could divorce if you were apart from your spouse for six months. Quickly, though, it became clear this was a step too far in terms of making divorces easy. Soldiers on campaign or people working on ships might be away for that long for their job and then come home and find themselves single. So that option was short-lived. It was suppressed after only 15 months. In cases where one of the spouses was no longer physically present, witnesses had to sign a statement certifying that this was the case. Similarly, in the case of criminal condemnation, documentation could be provided from the authorities. But not every ground was so clear-cut, and those cases need to go to court, but not really court like we think of it today. In 1790, family tribunals had been created as a means of handling family issues without going to the courts proper. Opposing sides in the case, so that's the couple that's splitting up, each picked arbitrators from their circle of family and friends, and they would get together and examine the situation and decide how things should go. If they were unable to sort it out, there was another arbitrator who came in to act as a tiebreaker. The goal of this was to make the process easier and foster discussion, respect over nasty legal battles, and keep the costs down, therefore increasing accessibility. The only problem was that as time went on, people got smarter about it and began to make sure the relatives or friends they chose had legal backgrounds. Sometimes, they even hired lawyers to act as their friends. It's not likely that many of these tribunals resulted in the couple staying together, and they were stopped in 1796. I should divert for a second to say that a legal split wasn't always cut and dry. Couples regularly had a lot tied in together. So divorce negotiations did include topics like seeking alimony, the splitting up of physical items, usually with the wife seeking to take out of the marriage what she brought into it, and custody arrangements for children. Typically, the mother was given custody of all the girls and the boys until they reached age seven, at which time the boys were given to their fathers. That said, in this period, the laws were such that almost anyone could find a way where their situation qualified for a divorce. That doesn't mean that the laws were perfect or even always fair. For example, a woman filing for divorce had to do so in the place of her husband's residence. How, tell me, were you supposed to do that when he deserted you and you didn't know where he was? Quirks like that in the divorce laws, though, didn't seem to stop people from obtaining them. Estimates suggest that anywhere between 38,000 and 50,000 couples divorced between 1792 and 1803 in France. There was a flood of them at the start as people sought to convert their pre-existing separations to divorces, but eventually numbers stabilized. Also, divorce rates were higher in urban areas, where increased exposure to politics could lead to, therefore, a knowledge of the laws being changed that might not have reached elsewhere. Plus, potential divorcees were more likely to have support from family or friends nearby in urban regions. Speaking of law changes, Did you notice how the number of divorces I cited was from 1792 to 1803? Well, there's a reason for that. The revolutionary government that introduced divorce was gone by the late 1790s. 
a post-revolutionary government called the Directorate, came in, and then it was followed by a coup in 1799 that saw Napoleon Bonaparte take over power in the new consulate government. By 1803-1804, Napoleon was on the verge of becoming emperor. His official coronation, regular listeners know, took place in December of 1804. This 1803-1804 period coincided with the introduction of new civil laws, including new divorce laws which would be encoded in a large collection famously known as the Napoleonic Code. The change in tone of government with the rise of Napoleon brought a change in perspective regarding divorce, and there were concerns about the amounts of divorces occurring, as well as the role of people within their families. Suddenly, separations were back on the table as an option, and divorces became harder to obtain. Did you still want to get divorced by mutual consent? You could do that, but there were stricter criteria to qualify. Now you couldn't divorce within the first two years of marriage, or after being married for 20 years. And if your wife was over 45, you couldn't divorce either. This last criteria particularly helped prevent women from being tossed aside for newer models when they were no longer fresh and young. The list of acceptable grounds for non-mutual consent divorce changed too, and it was severely cut down. Conviction for a serious crime with punishment was still there, as was cruelty or brutality. Adultery was now specifically named as a grounds for divorce, but it was only an option in a very specific kind of case. If a woman committed adultery, her husband could divorce her. If the husband committed adultery, the wife couldn't cite that as a reason for divorce unless he brought the person he had the affair with into the family home. See how this list is a lot shorter than the list of ways to qualify for divorce in the earlier period? Further, following a divorce under the 1792 law, sometimes couples would get back together and remarry. Not anymore. Once you divorce someone now, you could no longer remarry them, so you better be sure you wanted it. Plus, and this one I find particularly interesting, if a couple used the new adultery grounds to get their divorce, and the person the adulterer had the affair with was named in the case, the adulterer could never marry that person. So if you got caught having an affair, you better hope it was with someone you never want to make your wife or husband. Divorces under Napoleonic law put the emphasis back on there being a fault in the marriage as opposed to just a decision to not be together, and the process was made longer and more expensive. Although divorces continued, and you may recall from other episodes I did that Napoleon himself famously divorced Josephine, the numbers of them took a deep dive like the legislators hoped. Though when Napoleon's regime became unstable, the numbers ticked up again a bit, just as they did right before he became emperor. Well, why? This could have been because the change in the wind made people worry that the opportunity to divorce, or their specific ability to qualify for one, might soon be gone. And they were right both times. We just established that Napoleon made divorce harder, but what happened when he was gone? When Napoleon was overthrown in 1815, the government again changed significantly. The country returned to a monarchy under King Louis XVIII, that's the brother of Louis XVI, who had been executed during the revolution. The following year, divorce was outlawed. Once again, your only civil option was to file for a separation. And, in a term that was no doubt incredibly frustrating for some, the terms to get a separation were eerily similar to the Napoleonic terms for getting a divorce, but without the benefit of full marriage termination. Anyone who had been on the fence about a divorce before the law change and not opted to go for it hopefully made the right choice because now they were stuck. And things didn't change anytime soon. 
In the 1830s, 1840s, and 1870s, movements to bring back divorce failed. It wasn't until the 1880s that divorce returned, when both French monarchies and empires were gone and the country was in another republic. The push for this was spearheaded by a politician named Alfred Naquet. His plan went through several incarnations before it was passed. It initially resembled the broad divorces of the French Revolution, but ultimately looked more like the divorces allowed in the Napoleonic Code, though there were differences. For example, now a man didn't need to bring the person he was having the affair with into the marital home in order for his wife to file for divorce based on adultery. Interestingly, although Naquet and his own wife Estelle had separated many years ago, when divorce was legalized in 1884, they never took advantage of it. Nevertheless, Naquet's divorce law influenced the termination of marriages in France for almost a hundred years, by which time divorce was more common around the rest of Europe. So, dear listeners, now that you've heard all the ins and outs of getting a divorce over the course of France's revolutionary period, I must ask you, how do you think you would have felt if you wanted a divorce? Would you have used mutual consent to keep your scandals hidden? Would you have negotiated with your wrong spouse to keep your lover's name out of the paperwork so you could marry them when the divorce was final? How would you have used these laws to your advantage? Odds are, someone in France in that time period asked themselves the same questions. I hope you enjoyed my look at the frequently changing landscape of divorces in France's revolutionary era. For more from our Revolutionary France series, visit footnotinghistory.com. While you're there, you can also check out things like our merch shop, host biographies, and archive of past episodes. Thank you for joining me for this episode, and remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.